Welcome to Independent Living Movement Ireland's podcast, Conversations About Activism and Change, where disabled activists talk about their experiences and their views on building a disability rights movement in the 21st century. For our ninth podcast, recorded on the 9th of September 2020, we are joined by Dermot Hayes. Well, I've moved 14 times in my life. I was born outside Cotterfina Village in North Clare at the edge of the Bodden. I was born into a cottage, 14 of us children. Went to the local national school, which was very tough, really. I mean, there was a brutal teacher there in my third, fourth, fifth, and sixth year. He was brutal. He used the stick a lot. So, I mean, I still remember that I anxiously when I wake up at night for those days. Um, got involved in the youth club at the age of 14 or 15 because I, I knew I wouldn't go to play a sport, sport because I got an injury earlier in life. And uh, so I got involved in the youth club, which was very exciting. The youth club in Corofin, where I was from, the area. Uh, was very vibrant and stuff like so I took the leadership role of being chairman and secretary and treasurer at various times but as I grew into then I became the leader and obviously we got involved in lots of different things in the county and we were one of the more active youth clubs in Corofen outside inside in the county and you're talking about the 70s you know and I was born in 54 1954 the same year as Martin Oxton as a matter of interest and uh, back to the youth club and uh, the youth club days were very good and they left a big mark on me from the point of view of my ability to organize and support and campaign and stuff like that. But also the, what has left a mark in me in the sense is the, a large family and obviously working class uh, in the countryside. And, you know, once you came to the secondary school stage, you could see uh, at what we call groups at the time, a lot of guys at my age dropping out. But because of my, my disability, uh, to some degree, I didn't drop out. My parents wanted to keep me going, but all my other siblings dropped out. All my brothers dropped out. My six brothers dropped out at the age junior cert, uh, junior, what they call junior cert now. So that would be, and then obviously, if you had money, you could stay on. And I talk about the 70s now. And if you had money, you could go to university. But um, once I came to 18 and 19, I worked for a year. I decided really uh, manual work, or kind of physical work wasn't for me. I couldn't do it. So I'd raised money and I said myself, I brought myself to college in Cork to do electronics. Uh, this was 1973 now, which was very unusual electronics. So anyway, as it turned out, anyway, the school was a big, big mess up. Uh, it was fake school, really. Do you use that word, fake school? <laughs> uh, they, you know, by the time it came to Christmas, we found out that uh, the school was a whole sham and uh, they'd taken our money and we got no qualifications and went to go away with our tail between our legs and that was an awful disappointment. I was 18 at that time or maybe 18 and a half and I got back in and I started working in a company doing electronic goods. So that was an interesting period because um, it suited me because uh, they regarded me as a, a technician. I had the title technician which was obviously not fully true really but it was good fun. There was 400 in the factory at the time so I rose up to be the shop steward, uh, elected by the, my lads, and I was a shop steward for five or six years. And they were really my formative years, really, because I learned about a lot about injustice, inequality, and, uh, you know, you have to stand up for people that have been blackguarded and marginalized and stuff like that. So at the time, women weren't getting equal pay, the same as men, at the same job. Uh, so the equal pay came in 1976, um, late 76. So I was a shop steward at the time, so we, we fought for that. And we got the equal pay for women at the time. That was a major, uh, that was my first major um, event I took part in. And then involved in the trade union, I became the um, president of the local branch in Clare, 
then the year after I became the um, chairman of the local trades council, which is very influential. But those two bodies, I got to talk at various conferences around the country on various issues. So the issue then of rights for workers and participation and inclusion in the workplace. And the big issue there was quality of equality uh, for women at the time in the late 70s, early 80s, equality for women. That was a huge issue we fought for very hard. Then the place closed down in 83, and that was an awful big blow because obviously you were dependent on the all income and stuff like that. So you put on the door. So I went back to college again. I got a, a scholarship from the trade union into UCC in Cork doing cooperative studies, which was really eye-opener. The first time we had a great discussion about uh, gay rights, first never heard of before, and say inclusion of diverse community and immigrants, in, because Cork had a few immigrants at the time, and they were on the course. The course was designed that you get people from different walks of life, and I was a trade union guy. And so that was a great experience, really. We had huge, great debates at the time, and there was a lot of campaigns on around the university, as you will know yourself at those times in the, in the early 80s. High unemployment, very high unemployment, and a lot of poverty. And so that was a constant campaign. And the FOSS courses, as we know it now, they were, they were running at the time. Uh, I can't remember what, the first, what their name was at the time. It wasn't actually FOSS at the time. But uh, there was a particular, similar, similar body, like similar body running cheap schemes and stuff like that. So a lot of those schemes would be endless and there'd be no jobs out of them as such, or no training worthwhile. So we protested against that constantly. And then they obviously, the H block was on at the time. Uh, and that was very big. I mean, I didn't really participate in the H block. I wouldn't be a great believer, not so much in, I wouldn't be a great believer of Sinn Féin myself. Uh, in that, the way the violence, I don't believe in violence at any stage, at any stage. Uh, so I was very clear on that myself. But that was going on at the same time. And obviously the hunger strike was going on. And it was like, then Nicky Kelly was going on at the time, the train robbery guy that was imprisoned falsely. So that was going on. And I got involved in the Nicky Kelly case because I'd read a lot about it and I understood about it. But I, when I came, when that finished the course, I, I traveled around the country then working, do my work placements and stuff. That was an experience, good experience. Uh, and stuff. So I met people from different backgrounds and stuff like, like that. And uh, got involved in cooperatives. And I great believe in the cooperative cooperative method of working really. And uh, obviously because the capitalism, capitalism has kind of taken over there in 83, 84. Ronnie Regan and Maggie Thatcher were a great, great fan of capitalism and free trade and all that business. But the bottom line on the free trade means low wages, bad conditions, the whole lot, and obviously a lot of discrimination and stuff. So that was a big, big section there in my life there in those earlier years in the 80s, really. So we had a lot of discussion on that. So anyway, that course finished up anyway, and uh, a place for my, na my native place of Corofin, they had set up a workers' cooperative, Clare Resource Centre Workers' Cooperative, right? And there was a crowd of radicals, really, to be honest with you, know. There were a crowd of radicals. And people from different parts of the uh, Europe, really. People that come from England, that didn't like Maggie Thatcher, and other people came from France, they didn't like the, where the French regime, but they liked the West of Ireland. They'd be called hippies nowadays, really. So they invited me back anyway, so I got involved in them, and I was there for another 10 years. That was a great experience because you had so much, a diverse <laughs> opinion of different li of lifestyles that people led, really, whether it was free love, or whether it was smoking the marijuana, or whether it was uh, uh, vegan food, 
which I never had. All those, I opened up to all those discussions and stuff like that. So, I mean, that was great to have all those discussions, despite that my, my, my mother would never come near us, really, because we were all hippies and the whole lot. And <laughs> we, we didn't believe in any, any God or anything like that. So that was, you know, interesting in myself, that period. But uh, by the time we came to 89, 90, my, my, my health and my disability became more pronounced, to use the word, really. So a lot of people were concerned for me in, in the cooperative. And uh, by 92, we set up the Disabled People of Clare, a group of, uh, of uh, people like Anne-Marie Flanagan, Jerome Finucane, Thomas Canole, who we know, uh, and uh, Declan Constantine. So we set up the Disabled People of Clare in, uh, in 92, and that was a really amazing experience, really, for me, because uh, I learned so much from talking to Anne-Marie and, and Declan and Thomas. Uh, Thomas obviously been visually impaired and stuff like that. And, you know, their issue was unemployment, uh, obviously lack of access, housing, low income. So they were the issues that we were fighting on. And, uh, you know, we just, I suppose, jailed together very well, the four or five of us. We worked long hours now. We had long meetings, long, very long meetings, you know, going into hours and hours and hours, and uh, debates and discussion. So they, those five or six years, first five or six years of the DPOC, were very vibrant and very creative and stuff. But at the same time, independent living was starting out in 1991 and Martin Nocton came down and uh, we became great friends with Martin Nocton and Janet Overbo, which she had come to live in Ireland in around 92, I think I remember for a while, 92 for a short period. And she, she uh, we set up um, a gathering with her now in Spanish Pint at the time, that's in West Clare. So that was a great influence to listen to her, what she had to say. Dawn and Lovis, we got to know Dawn, and we got to know Joe Mooney and all those guys. So the first five years were very influential, as I said, and we got a community employment scheme, and Martin helped to negotiate that with the local force office. So that meant I, uh, the, I was nominated as the CE supervisor, which gave me an income as well, and more freedom. I wasn't married at that stage or anything like that, so I was still single and free. And uh, <laughs> and uh, they were good. They were good times. Anyway, I'll tell you. So anyway, um, by 1995, we had CE scheme up and running, which meant we had I think it was eight or nine, ten staff members or workers or CE scheme. So personal assistance was the key thing for us, and transport was the key thing because you're living. Talk about rural countryside here now. We were two and a half miles away from the village. I had no car. Jerome had a car, and Declan had a car. So the car between us and Anne-Marie had no car either. So transport was a huge issue for us, right? So we applied for lots of different bits of funding and we got funding from the Lotto, uh, the Lotto in 96, yeah. So the first thing, we bought a bus. We got a bus, that was a big investment for us really. We didn't know ourselves. And then we, we obviously, we did a lot of media in the first five years, we did a lot of media. We got to know a lot of counselors, we got to know how the system works. And then NRB were just fading out in, uh, well, they weren't fading out. No, that's not true, really. The, the NRB had been still alive and we were critically, we were critical publicly of the NRB locally in County Clare because their own solution to finding jobs or support for people with disabilities was to put them into a training center. And we were all adamant that we weren't going to go into any training center. We wanted real jobs, we wanted real training, we wanted real education. We were very clear about that, really. And obviously, as time goes by, we learned about legislation and we found 
the legislation was very discriminatory, really. So we talked about, you know, because obviously all the movement in not alone Clare, but other independent living CILs were setting up in 94, 95, 96. So there was a great vibrancy in Ireland at the time around the country. So we got to visit places like Leitrim. We were invited to places like Leitrim because they heard about us and down to Kilkenny. So we were always glad to get off, hop into a car, five bus and head off down the road and maybe stay overnight. You know what I mean? You know, we were very casual about that. So we had great whole fun and at that point of view. So we spoke in the places like Kilkenny and Carlow and, and up in Leitrim and stuff. So our, the word got around. So we were well able to use um, contacts that we had really, you know. And uh, that's stood to me later on. So by 97 then we moved into Ennis and we got a big office. We addressed the local county council uh, and the urban council. And uh, we became very good friends with the urban council uh, clerk at the time. And he had a mother, his mother was in a wheelchair himself. So he had a lot of empathy with us. So one of the things he promoted to us was opening an accessible toilet in Ennis, which was interesting itself. <laughs> so he got funds together for opening two accessible toilets in, in Ennis. Uh, if you were ever in Ennis, you'd know what they were. So we had to officially open the toilet, which was a force for me. <laughs> I thought that was interesting, very little. So anyway, we also got to address the local council chamber uh, and about access and stuff like that. So we made them aware of it and we were very good at getting local coverage in the media. So the issues came up bit by bit, the whole personal assistance. And we also got onto the, the local health board as it was then, uh, onto the committee uh, dealing with issues with disability, well, health really, disability. So we were quite vocal and we had a couple of uh, sympathetic ears in there that listened to us really and um, we made great progress over time with the H, uh, the HSC at uh, the, the health boards at the time so in 98 we were one of the first people that got a ball of money well we got a ball of money seven or eight thousand for personal assistance right and we had to uh, we, when the allocation was twenty thousand but we had John Dolan the AFI uh, fought for the other half of it so they got another half and we were disappointed of that. We got seven or eight thousand. So we we implied uh, two people with disability, uh, two people that would act as personal assistants, really. So that was a breakthrough in Clare. So we had a good or long discussion about the whole job description and the whole lot. So that was a great discussion and great debate and stuff like that. So we got, but we had a board as well. Uh, we set up a company in 95 under the, uh, the uh, watchful eye of the, um, forum of people with disability who had a similar constitution and we altered our constitution in Clare to suit our own our own situation so obviously that was very effective so our constitution was quite it took the guts of a year to debate the constitution because we went through every single thing on a saturday we had letter saturday meetings and every single thing down to the finest detail of what such and such a thing meant really and uh, we were very clear and adamant that um, the majority of our directors would be people with disabilities. So we, we've held on to that. We held on to that very firmly. And we had our AGMs and stuff like that. So that was very powerful. But going back there now to the Forum of Disability, I had been on the Forum of Disability. I can't remember, was it 93 or 94 I got onto it? And that was very informative and very um, progressive organization. Because, and now no one had your Jackie Brown on it, but you had Donald Toolan on it. 
and you have several great names now. Some of them, a lot of them have, have passed away really over the years, but really powerful stuff. Very intense meetings really on various issues to do with various disabilities and uh, action. But um, yeah, I learned a lot there now on the forum of disabilities. That was in North Great Georgia Street, if I remember. Yeah, it was, yeah, North Great Georgia Street. And obviously the occasional trip up to Dublin for the independent living movement up to Brunbridge Street and uh, other conferences that uh, Martin would have organized, you know. So we attended those, a few of us attended those from time to time. Uh, moving on then back up, back to the disabled people of Clare. Uh, that was going well now. There was a lot, we were involved in a lot of things really. We got European funding for the development of uh, uh, entitlements for people with disability and uh, we worked that out. And that was a lot of money. That was up to nearly 50,000 at the time. And the idea was to gather all the bits of information that was to do with people with disability entitlements and put them into one CD, because CDs were the thing at the time. So we pulled, we got two staff in and we pulled that together and uh, we uh, launched that in Hola. We made a big issue out of it. Uh, Gabriel Hanrahan was in one of that was one of the staff members. So anyway, we uh, headed off to, we got an invite out to Europe from Paddy Flem, who was the commissioner at the time. So he invited out to Europe in late 98, yeah, it was, or December the 3rd, 98, that's right, yeah. Declan and, and Gabriella and myself came out, went out uh, at his, at, he paid for the whole lot. So that was amazing. That was my first time now to, to Brussels at the time. So we launched the CD there again in Europe as well. It's interesting. So we met P. Flynn, as we say, right? And, you know, he wined us and dined us and the whole lot. So that was a great experience. And we also got money as well. I can't remember whether we got the money. Oh, yeah, from the Arts Council, 97, to do uh, drama. So we were very keen to do drama. And there's a great chap here locally, P.J. Curtis. He's famous. He's retired now. He was, um, he's produced 60 albums for various artists like Stockton's Wing and all those guys, right? Mike, Mike Henry and all those. So anyway, he wrote a play called Wake in the West. So we got, we got a couple of um, directors in to help us perform that play. So we were very lucky. Uh, the play went off very well. We toured the county with us. You know, it was great from the point of view of disabled people of Clare doing all this. So that was a great advertising for us. We weren't just kind of a campaigner and shouting and the whole lot. We were into the arts and all that. So that was very interesting. And we went to Belfast with a with drama and we did it in the arts place in Dublin as well. So that was a great night out. Don't invite us up there. Don't tool and invite us up there. But that was a great experience really for us. You know, you talk about four or five people at um, maybe six or seven, maybe we dropped there. So we found that very, very useful from the point of view of spreading the message for rights for people with disabilities. And we were always constant man mantra all the time, rights, not charity, rights, not charity, nothing about us without it. That was a constant mantra in the local media. Every time we went on the local radio or on the local paper, admit the councillors. So that was a constant mantra and we had that plastered out over the front of our office, etc. So people were in no doubt about our, our issues, really. So obviously, by the time the DPOC was coming to 2002, we had something like 46 people employed at the time in various schemes, really, and programs. So that was a lot of work for me, but the same, I wanted to change. So I looked around what could be there, so I saw employability employability, looking for somebody, a new manager. So I said, I'd like to do that now to myself. 
So I said I'd do that uh, because employment is really, if you have a job, if you have a job, you're halfway up the ladder at least, really. Uh, you can have some income and you can go places, etc. Uh, so that was very useful. So I got the job anyway, but uh, the job only lasted nine months because, uh, anyway, my opinion, I felt that there was a person inside that had been offered the job. She knew that she was number two on the list and she gave me a hard time and the job. So the bosses kind of called me aside one day and said, your nine months probation is up, gone. So that was a, another huge disappointment. So anyway, we looked around for another job anyway. So I saw the PWDI, which maybe people are aware of, people with disabilities in Ireland, had been up and running since um, around 98. Now the PWDI had been really up and running in terms of jobs, but they also had done an amazing amount of work from about 92 to 93, 94, and they had produced the big tome of a document in 96, November of 96. So that was launched down in Cork. And by the way, we were at that in Cork in the November of 96. We had a great night, a great night. We got well drunk that night, anyway, I'll tell you. Got well drunk. So the PWDI had been up and running and in the disabled people player had been involved with the PWDI right up along say the, the, the 90s. And we were very active here in Clare and we set up a, a local committee, etc. So some of us were on that local committee. But go back to where I was anyway, after losing the job in pliability in um, 2003, uh, three, uh, I got a job in people with disabilities in Ireland. And that job was basically going around the county, I said the Munster area, first of all, uh, supporting little groups that have been set up or setting them up uh, in each county. And because of my extensive links in the independent living movement, I was well aware of what was happening in Cork. So I set up, I, I strengthened the group in Cork very much so, in Tipperary likewise, in Limerick likewise. And obviously we weren't uh, that involved in County Limerick or in County Kerry. So we got a group up and running in County Kerry for a while as well. And, and Waterford, it was a very active group in Waterford as well. So that was a great eye opener for me because we were trying to bring the different strands of disability together. People with disabilities, organizations and other bodies that might be interested, like the local authority, etc., to strengthen the bodies uh, and, uh, and for change. It's all about change really, you know. And uh, at the same time, in 2002, the Disability Act was coming to, coming to fruition. So we thought anyway. So, but the big issue with the 2002 disability proposal was, legislation was, it wasn't the right based. I know I'm skipping back there now again, but uh, uh, in 2002, a lot of us headed to Dublin from Clare and elsewhere, and we packed the mansion house. The meeting was chaired by the Irish Times writer and journalist, Finton O'Toole, but the meeting was organized by Donald Toolan and a lot of other people, Matt Nocton, and the place was packed. So I objected extensively and people spoke at length about why the Disability Act that was being proposed wasn't sufficient, etc. It gave no rights to people with disabilities. So the minister at the time came on the, morning, came on the following morning on the radio and said the Disability Act was being proposed, was scrapped. So go back to the drawing board. So we're back to the drawing board anyway. So I was in PWI in 2003, as I said. So I'll be back to the drawing board anyway. And we were very hopeful that when the Disability Act would come up again for legislation in 2005, that would be what we wanted. 
So people were, were aware all around the country what the issues were, very clearly. People with disabilities. So there was a lot of issues about, say, people having sign language, people having, say, say access to education, access to buildings, uh, public and private buildings, you know, well, let's say private buildings, like pubs and places like that, without any, any um, uh, what should I say, restriction and access to information, very important. So there was great hope that this new Disability Act in 2005 would deliver everything. But we campaigned and we lobbied and people met politicians and lobbied ministers and stuff like that. But when the 2000 Disability, uh, Disability Act came, a lot of people had lost a lot of fight, had lost the guts to fight, or the will to fight, let's say they were worn out. And uh, the Disability went, Bill went through without any rights. Because if you look at, say, for example, the, the HSC, and if you want your complaint, your complaint, by the time you have any, the second stage of complaint made, you're worn out from writing and, and documentation. And by the time you actually complain, it goes all the way up to the top to the minister. It takes a whole year, no, two, two years to have your complaint serviced, really. So that kind of a thing that was very, very, and then also if you want to access the pubs and, and a, a toilet, an accessible toilet, there was a whole raft of legislation that if sorry, an old building and it couldn't be done and if the cost was too much that the landlord didn't have to, the owner didn't have to do it. All those little pieces were stuck into the legislation, which was crazy really from our point of view. So there was a lot of people very disappointed with the disability, but, but nonetheless, that's what we had to work with. So part of my job with the, the, the PWDI was to encourage people to looking for change. So that grew, that disability uh, PWI grew to somewhat. And, you know, we had a million and a quarter funds when I started out, which was a significant amount of money for a small organization. And um, as time went by, not alone did I get monster, but I got out of all the west of Ireland. So I traveled up to Donegal on a good few occasions and Leithrum and places like that and Sligo and Mayo. So I was on the road quite a lot, really. And the children were young. Uh, and uh, that was kind of a drawback in a way. Uh, so, but nonetheless, the, you know, the job, I liked the job very much actually, really. And, uh, but the only thing is that the big organization like the IWA rehab or anything uh, in Naval Island didn't get involved in PWDI. And it was very hard to get people with disabilities themselves to get involved because obviously the same old thing, transport was a huge issue. Transport is a constant issue, really. We didn't have Zoom like we have today, which maybe could have done a lot of the meetings with and get people involved. But obviously, what we needed, really, I felt myself, is two or three things to focus on, that we could just focus on two or three things and we get it done. And transport was a constant issue. Personal assistance was a big issue as well. They were not, that was another big issue. And uh, <clears throat> sign language, came up as an, an issue regularly for people to participate with. And uh, the education, access to education. And as we saw, you know, later on, education become easier to access for a lot of people with disabilities nowadays because you have so many choices. I mean, you can see the numbers there, how many, how much the education system has changed in 20 years for people with disabilities. Really, a lot more people are participating in the education system, which is great, really, you know but maybe we need to more, do more. There's more to be done. There's a lot of people that don't have done that. And obviously the, the whole issue then of uh, 
congregated settings became a discussion in PWDI uh, in around 2008 and stuff like that. So that discussion is still going on about congregated setting and access and liberty and the whole lot. So that's really things have moved on. But I'm saying the key thing I find myself is that the need for personal assistance for people that want them instead of the carers, instead of a part-time, a part-time uh, couple of hours, and uh, basically it's no effect. But the issue then of housing and access to housing is a huge issue because as we know, people with disability by and large are on low income, you know, they're, they're on the disability allowance or disability pension or blind pension, and that's very low. So in order to access decent accommodation and stuff like that, you need, you need to have a, a proper system to support that really, a, a better system, a better housing system. And that's all very doable, but the will is not there. But the biggest issue is to unite the people with disabilities. That is our, that is my biggest dream is to get something to unite people with disabilities. What is it? I'm not quite sure. We need to talk more about it. What are the issues that unite people with disabilities? Because I constantly look at the farmers and I know there have been a bit of a division in the farmers in the last two years. But prior to that, the farmers were very united to the IFA, the Irish Farmers Organization. All through the 80s and 90s and even the 90s, the farmers were very united and they made great progress on their issues in fairness to them, really. And while, while all that's happening, but on the other hand, I think the trade union movement myself needs to be brought to bear on, on all the issues that concern us about equality and participation. And I mean, you know, they, they, they have a great opportunity to do something significant for people with disabilities. And I know two or three trade unions over the years, because I've been a member of the trade union, have done a small bit here and there. But, you know, collectively, they can do an awful lot, the trade unions. And, you know, you can't go turning in a blind eye. I mean, the, the issue there of, uh, you know, when you think about the numbers of a half million people with disabilities in Ireland are over, there's an opportunity for the trade union movement to do something significant. Because you, you, you saw what could be done with the divorce campaign or the, or the gay rights campaign there a couple of years ago and we had the vote. Collectively, something, a lot can be done really because we have to get away from the notion of charity. And I think that's holding us up and that's, that's um, what should I say, that is um, tying our hands because even my own county where people are, are kind of caught between working with the Clare Leader Forum and building the Clare Leader Forum that are also supportive of the charity model in Clare and elsewhere. So as soon as you have to be, you have to be very clear about clearly about demarking or marking out that uh, line that you can't have it both ways, really. We can't have it both ways. So we have to be very clear about that. Now, as I'm also talking there, I was nominated by the minister in 2012 onto the DSG, that's the uh, Disability Consultative Committee, uh, committee in the end that works out of the NDA. So I've been on that for the last, since 2012. Uh, that now is very frustrating in the sense that we are there now trying to roll out the Disability Act 2005. And uh, many of us are on the various government or minister or gov um, departments, on various departments, sitting on various committees in the departments. And the progress is incredibly slow, absolutely incredibly slow. For example, I'm the housing one now which is moving in small business, Michael McCabe and myself and, and Michelle Scanlon are on that. 
and that's moving a small little bit but the problem about the housing uh, nationally and uh, say each county does their own thing to some degree okay they take some of the national stats and stuff like that but they're moving very but at the same time they're moving but other other departments i understand are not moving as fast at all the department of education the department of transport is moving still very slow so for example in county clare the bus between Ennis and Kilrush is not, the public bus is not accessible. That's just an example, really. So there's all kinds of examples around the country that I could give you. But go back to the PWDI anyway. Um, so I was moving on to 2009 and we were holding conferences and we were holding seminars, etc., in various places, you know, and annually. Uh, that was useful in a sense. But at the same time, there was never a momentum that gathered, that gathered that um, uh, led to a national, a national movement as such. I mean, we had the resources in PWI to do that, but the leadership, with the leadership within the leadership, it wasn't there. I'm afraid. I, mean, I you know, I have to say that very clearly. The leadership was not there to do that nationally. I mean, the board was very big. The board of the PWI was very, very big, and uh, you know. I know that you want democracy and, and inclusion and that someone from each county to be representative. But, you know, in terms of making decisions and getting on with it, uh, it was top heavy, very top heavy with the whole question of uh, too many people on the board and uh, a lot of their money being sucked up or sucked up in, in uh, expenses and stuff like that. So, you know, there's a lot of questions. And then obviously the recession hit in 2008 and by the time of uh, end of 2011, the place closed down, which was very bad. Another job, lost another job. That was my third job I lost. Uh, and um, that was a bit of a heartbreaker. But anyway, how's ever, carry on, life goes on. Um, so the DPOC had been going all along. And it's important to record here now that the DPOC was going, myself and Anne-Marie remained on the board, active on the board. But during the PWDI years, maybe I wasn't as active as I should have been in the latter years. And certain figures came into the board and they wanted to run a charity model type of thing. So we objected to that on several occasions. Uh, and then the issue then of um, one of the, the manager, the manager left then. And when the manager left, we decided to scale back the job of the manager to uh, a lower income. So we got somebody on for that and uh, she wasn't in the job four or five days when she resigned uh unclear why she resigned but anyway so we got a new person to step in our place so she got the job anyway and she wasn't there a wet week so she wanted the same salary that the previous manager has got which was significant amount of money and uh, we are i objected significant back that was 2012 now i objected and marie objected to very very much so so there was AGMs called and EGMs called and the whole lot. And in 2013, 20, July 2013, both Anne-Marie and myself were taken off the board, voted out of the board and voted out of membership by the people that were in charge at the time, which was a terrible, savage blow to myself. That was one of my low points in my life. The board, uh, the, the disabled people, Claire, that Anne-Marie and myself uh, and others had set up. Uh, threw us out as membership. That was a very dirty, dirty, dirty blow. They brought in a, a solicitor 
and obviously all the rules that we couldn't contest it uh, because we didn't have the price of a solicitor, proper price of a solicitor. I was unemployed at the member. So that was a very, very, very hurtful. It took me months to get over it, months, if not a year, to get over that blow. And um, never forget it. Uh, someday we'll write about it. It's left a lot of, lot of stains in, in my really hurtful, really, very hurtful. So the DPOC kept going, and in 2016, then it closed down due to financial issues, which begs the question. Anyway, that's another day's conversation. I wasn't there, so it does beg a lot of questions, and a very sad occasion. But meanwhile, I got on to the Centre for Independent Living, as it was then in 2014 or 15, I think, which has subsequently subsumed into the ILMN, ILMI. <laughs> so I got subsumed into that. When it got subsumed into that, so I'm on that board as director until this next AGM, which I'll be stepping down. Uh, you know, I'm at that age now where I'm stepping back. But thankfully, thankfully, it's up and running. It's going extremely well. Very proud of it. Very proud of the great work that the board is doing. Great connections around the country. A lot of hard work on it a lot of energy, uh, a lot of direction given, and a lot of hope for a lot of people with disabilities that we're going the right place. And I suppose really it's all about timing as well and to get the politicians on side. But obviously to be able to be able to mix it with the politicians and to get in there. But I think the big significant thing is that the independent living movement now is stronger than it was 20 years ago, thankfully because it's now uh, embedded into our, our psychic and the idea that we could have legislation uh, for independent living and personal assistance is only a couple, it's only a step away really. It's, only, it's going to happen, it's only a step away. But when I think about all the independent, when I think about the great traveling that we did now through Europe, and I was with Martin Upton on two occasions going to Europe uh, in his van, and there was some experience with John O'Toole and God, there were some experiences and his personal assistance going to Strasbourg and then obviously going to Brussels on another occasion. But the whole hope and learning that you do from the Norwegians and the Swedish and the Germans and the coming together really and going into the parliament and knowing that we are Ireland is only step away from significant change, but we have to push a little bit because the charity model is still there and there's a lot of people ingrained and embedded in the charity model, the big organizations are embedded in that and obviously their jobs and their livelihoods are dependent on it. But we as an independent living body, we have to push that um, people with disabilities want rights, not charity, very clearly. We want our rights, not charity. And the charity models uh, can belittle people uh, and bring people down to the poor creator are the poor old devil, uh, are the, you know, the idea that send them off to Lewis, or should they be grand, that'll give me a few days holidays and they'll be all right, then should they be come back, sure, they'll be happy, you know, freely, what about it, like really, you know. So the whole idea that to be included in society means that you have access to the services uh, 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 that like everybody else. And to be very clear, what does that mean? What does that mean? Access to transport, a bus, if you're going from Kilrush to Ennis, or anywhere in Clare or anywhere in Ireland because it's doable. Technology is there now so much. Accessible to education, fully accessible for sign language, 
uh, accessible for visually impaired that they have uh, full access to their information. And for people with intellectual disabilities, they can they can make their, their feelings known and be involved at various levels in, in whatever they, they feel comfortable with. So, I mean, you know, we are human beings. We all want to get on the world. But it's in, in the question of being strong and white, uh, being the dominant person, you know. We have to understand that there's room for us all in this world, really. Dermot, would you mind telling us a little bit about the times that you've run for office? Well, I stood for election on three occasions, way back in 1985. Uh, obviously, previously, I've been involved in the trade unions. And at, at that point in time, in the 80s, early 80s, late, or, uh, late 70s, early 80s, I joined the thing called the Workers' Party, right? And we all remember the Workers' Party, who obviously morphed into the Democratic left later. But I stood in Ennis uh, in 1985. And Ennis was a much smaller town. At that time, you, 70, 75 votes would have get, get you a seat in the local authority, but I only got 70. And in 19, uh, 2014, then, I stood again for the Labour Party in 2014. And um, that was a good, exciting run, etc. Very close. A lot of learning done. Ennis had expanded dramatically. And uh, the issues were alive and well, from my point of view. And uh, I had a great team around me. And uh, I was pipped at the post again. So I got very close, I got 780 votes. Uh, and then again, uh, last year, 2019, I went independent and had a great run actually, great, great campaign, great, mighty campaign, a tough campaign, but my health wasn't great. Uh, and uh, again, I was pipped at the post. I was number eight out of, um, out of 15 people. So there was, generally there had been eight seats in Ennis, but they took away one seat, so anyway. That was my experience in running, but I'm saying I'm, I'm, I'm advising anybody that's interested in politics at all, and even to just put your name on the list and the ballot paper, that's very important really. Put your name on the ballot paper and say who you are, and you get an opportunity to go on the local radio, and you get an opportunity to do a bit of media, and obviously you gather people around you. But don't expect uh, votes to happen without an input from you and your friends. And... The, the last election cost me 4,000 euros. Now, thankfully, I have enough friends that gave me the 4,000 euros. And uh, a lot of them did a lot, a lot of lead work down there. So I'll never be able to thank, thank them enough. There was a serious amount of lead work done and getting people together. And we had good uh, local um, social media operating as well. But, you know, oh, you're up against the big parties. You've got to know that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, they're the big parties. And Sinn Féin and some parts of the world. But uh, yeah, it's good experience really because, um, and then you've got to browse over. I mean, the key thing for us here now, what I did, we browsed over the previous elections, the previous elections, and that was a great learning for me and on my team as well. And after the election then, when the election is counted, you browse over uh, the electoral register again because in the electoral register, you could see who voted and who didn't vote. And to my horror, and I, I will never forget this now, to my horror, I live in an estate where there's 28 houses and six of my close neighbours that I know extremely well didn't vote, didn't vote. Pure apathy, apathy now. That was a total turning off point for me, very disillusioned after that. And uh, I'll never be able to forget that. I mean, I don't know what the psychology is there in terms of getting around people. And I talked to one woman who is the secretary of the local housing estate here. And she just shrugged her shoulders and said, ah, sure, look, you know, ah, that's all she said, like, 
And, you know, that was, a, you know, and you'd imagine because I was going on the, the issues of homelessness and housing and equality and disability and rights and inclusion and all that. And, you know, you know, that, that was just apathy, absolutely people apathy, really, which is incredible, really incredible to think that people are still there. So there's some part of me saying we should have um, an uh, electoral system where people should have to vote like they have in Australia. It should be fine, you know. I mean, that's gone down a tough road, but you know, if you think about it, only 65% of the population vote, or less than 65. 65, in fact, is a, a high number. And uh, that's my journey uh, all the way till uh, whether I run in 2024 now. <laughs> it's a matter of, I don't know whether I'll be alive in 2024, but that's another matter. But it'll be an interesting when I look, uh, you know, I'm encouraging anyone that's watching this tonight to put the name forward for the next election. And before I finish up here, I want to pay a very strong, uh, very important compliment to a good friend of mine who's been with me since 1992. And she's been on the road with me on several occasions up and down the country. And we fought and we agreed and we rang each other weekends, etc., And we lobbied with each other. And Marie Flanagan, who has been there by my side, I've been by her side as well, by the way, uh, since 1992. So it's been a great journey and uh, today in 2020, but the journey is not finished yet. We have more to do. That was very powerful, Dermot. Now I'm going to ask you maybe two questions if you have time, because one of them I think is really important. I think there's a real strength of character there that you have around the collective, which shows up in everything you've done in terms of you're going back, fado, fado, back to Cora Finn when you're talking about the youth work. When you're talking obviously around your role as a trade union activist, your role in DPOC, PWDI, the forum, right up to where you are now with ILMI. One of the bits I just want to explore is, I think it'd be very easy, as you said, you were very hurt and understandably so that you were sidelined from DPOC, an organisation that yourself, Anne-Marie and Thomas and others had built from scratch. I think a lesser person would have thrown in the towel locally, but yourself and Anne-Marie and others went on then to form the Clare Reader Forum, which has been hugely successful and a key part of, of your story as well. Was that something they had said, you weren't going to just throw the towel in, that you were going to build something new, which has again become very, very successful? Yes, building the Clare Leader Forum has been a great, there's no doubt about it, but I mean, that's been a great success. But obviously we've learned an awful lot of lessons. And I think one of the lessons we have, we have what we call a broad church now, you know, that people with various disabilities involved. Uh, it's one of the uh, few organizations in the country that has people from various strands of disability, which is great. And I've resisted the whole idea of having a formal, a formal group, you know, setting up as a company up to now. So we have maintained uh, an informal gathering each time all year, while we take the minutes of the whole lot. But uh, that has been a great learning, really, because I've learned so much from the lads that come into the meetings, etc on what their needs are and what we, we can do together and how we can work together. And we have a lot of common interests, really. We have a lot of common interests, which is whether it is the, the, the disco we have quarterly or whether it is, um, you know, the transport issues. We have very common issues. There's no question of that, really, you know. So, and obviously the education, and we were very fortunate to get the Limerick Institute of Technology on board as well. So they are doing tra two training courses. They're, well, they're on the second training course now, of the third one, if I say, yeah, third one now. And um, so that, you know, gives me another hope that we can do this and we can work together on that basis. And I think 
the fact that um, technology has helped an awful lot in that really whether whatsapp or whether it is zoom or whether it is a facebook using technology has really helped and it, it gives them and it gives us the time to question the charity model versus the rights model and uh, we've got more access now to the local authority which is important and we we through the clear public partnership network we've got three people elected onto various committees in the clear public partnership which leads on to the local authority as well which is great really and i think that's a big bonus really and it's our advice it's not anybody else's advice and we're very clear that um, it's nothing about us without us i'm very clear about that and but there's a lot of work to be done yet and the whole legislation and the un convention is coming up regularly for discussion and understanding that and you know implementing that uh, which is a a big term of work and understanding it and obviously training people around the advocacy which is a huge issue with the advocacy is a huge issue for people with intellectual and learning disabilities and then obviously the understanding the whole mental health issue and uh, so those are a lot of bit of work that's been done and can be done and we have talented people that can do all this within the disability movement in Clare and outside of County Clare. So we're very lucky to have that really. And it's a great model. I mean, it, you know, you do, I think other disabled people in other parts of the country do look towards Clare because these have been trailblazers in that regard, as you say, in the forum, been cross impairment, you know, been a DPO, and it's certainly yourself and other members very active in ILMI, which is a huge bonus. And it gives scope then to other people around the country to say, if it's been done in Clare, why can't it be done elsewhere? There's one thing I just wanted to ask you. You mentioned it, I'd say, but six or seven times. And to, to me, it's always music to my ears. When I hear activists talking about it has to be about change, it has to be about change. Well, that, to me, makes my heart sing. And I just want you to kind of reflect back, you know, in that journey you were talking about from the 60s onwards, and you're talking about, you know, from your work as a youth activist into the cooperative, which sounds very exciting. We might have a separate podcast about this free love you're talking about in Cara Finn. <laughs> but you know, it's, a it's a long journey and you've been involved in so many things at the forefront of it. What do you think has changed the most as a disabled man? What are the changes you've seen for the positive or for the negative in the last 30, 40 years? Well, I think more and more people, I think the government now have it on their agenda, people with disabilities. It's on their agenda now. Uh, it's not a question of shoving them into workshops or training centres or, or locking them up in, in centres. It's on the agenda and it's, uh, we obviously keep it on the agenda locally and nationally as well. Uh, access to various things really. And I think that's a huge thing that has changed because when I started out, I mean the councillors were looking at you to explain, they were looking at you to explain what you meant about uh, uh, a crossing a road for people that are blind. I mean. They couldn't figure out why would blind person be crossing the road like <laughs> you know things like that but i think i just laugh at it now really so i mean the the ability of someone that's visually impaired to walk on their own and cross the road safely you know these are small little things but they're important really they're very important and the idea that someone that's deaf needed a sign language interpreter and that can be done really and it's we see it every night there on television in the COVID um, announcements that sign language now are very common in the whole lot. And my wife uses that an awful lot now. So, I mean, the reality is that uh, these things are possible, really. So back, that's the change I've seen. And those are the changes we were campaigning for. 
And when, when the, the 402 recommendations were made in 1996, uh, we were glad in Clare because the, the, the um, what I said, the group came down to Clare three times to ask us our opinion, you know, what we thought in 94, 95, and to produce the document. So we put a lot of stuff into that, like anybody else around the country, about access to transport. And that transport is a constant issue, constant issue. And access to housing is another constant issue. And obviously education. So those issues, but basically it's about human rights and obviously being included in the proclamation, as I said, Irishmen and Irishwomen in the, in the name of God, the dead generation that, you know, so it is clearly documented in the, in the, in the, Irish, in the Irish proclamation and in the Irish constitution, but not clearly as clearly as we thought it was in the Irish constitution. But in the proclamation, it's very clear that we all should have equal rights, really. You've been very generous with your time, Dermot, and I really, really Thank appreciate you. it. One last question for you. Given all the experience that you've had, and you've been instrumental in, in you know, pushing ILMI into a new direction, you're coming to the end of one journey. So what's your vision for ILMI as a DPO? I mean, you're still going to be a participant. I know that. We'll not get rid of you that handy. But you'll be coming in, not maybe as a board member from uh, October, but you'll still be there to guide us, participate locally and involved internationally. So what's your vision for ILMI? What direction does it need to go? Well, I think it really is to, to build a movement of people with disabilities that they see human rights and independent living as a way forward not to be dependent on the charity model and to get away from the idea of the charity model as a solution. Charity model is not the solution for people with disabilities to participate in society really, very clearly. And also another big role that the ILMI is to be clearly watching what the government is doing in terms of legislation and in terms of changes in legislation and to be sitting at that table on a regular basis reminded the government of what they promised a couple of years ago, uh, you know, when Martin Nocton and others, others were sitting outside the Alley in, in 2013 uh, and all the great promises that they made there now in the Guinea and whoever else was there at the time. And, uh, you know, they're still not delivered. And the 2005 Act is still not delivered. The whole personal assistance is not. It's all been fed. A lot of the services have been fed through organisations, through the IWA and Able Island and all the but choice about choice people need choice really choice to get up in the morning choice where where we go that's what i'm saying and that brings us to the end of podcast nine in conversations about activism and change make sure to listen to our other podcasts by visiting www.ilmi.ie to find out more about our work sign up for our e-bulletin by emailing info at ilmi.ie or follow us on twitter at ilm ireland or facebook facebook.com forward slash ILM Ireland.